welcome to The Rob Burgess Show. I'm, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 202nd episode, our returning guest is Edward J. Watts. You first heard Edward J. Watts on episode 129. Edward J. Watts holds the Alcaviatis Vasiliadis Endowed Chair and is Professor of History at the University of California, San Diego, and lives in Carlsbad, California. He is the author and editor of several prize-winning books, including The Final Pagan Generation and Mortal Republic, How Rome Fell into Tyranny. His new book, The Eternal Decline and Fall of Rome, The History of a Dangerous Idea, was published on August 3rd, 2021. And now on to the show. I'm really, I'm glad to do it again, and uh, it's good to talk again. Have you yeah. been for the last three years? Oh my gosh, <laughs> so much has happened. Uh, let's see, uh, I had uh, another daughter, uh, my wife and I did last year. Um, that was exciting. Oh, congratulations. Uh, thank you, yeah, yeah. It was uh, a month into the pandemic, so it was a, a very uh, special experience. <laughs> Um, we delivered her at home uh, with with no warning, actually. Oh wow! So that was pretty pretty surprising and, and special. <laughs> so, are you guys um, still in Indiana? Yes, yes, we are. So, but how have My you been? My parents are in Bloomington. Uh, oh no, kidding! So they're, yeah, they're telling us all about the um, the state of things. Well, <laughs> the state of things in Indiana during COVID sounds like yeah. it's a challenge. It really, really is. Yeah, we're we're definitely in in uh, uncharted territory in that in that realm. Yeah, yeah. So, how have you been? How doing these last three years? Uh, it's it's been interesting. I'm our department chair, so I'm um, I got to watch sort of firsthand everybody, you know, continually scramble to try to figure out what's going on, what the latest sort of viral news is what it means for our campus what it means for our students and uh it's tiring i'm kind oh, of oh yeah <laughs> now, I, yeah my I, term is up in the summer and i am just so ready for it to be up it's right too much how much in person versus how much virtual are you doing right now in terms of teaching uh last year was all virtual okay um, we went virtual because we're in a quarter system so our um COVID like became a thing the last two weeks of our second quarter in mm -hmm. uh, 2020. And so we, we had two weeks to shift to completely remote for the spring. Oh my gosh. We spent the whole year remote. Uh, and now um, we had planned to be almost fully back in person. And then with Delta, um, it's shifted now. And I think we're well, I think we're still like 80% in person, mm -hmm. um, but it's hard too, because we have a lot of international students, oh, wow. they need, you know, they need to have stuff uh, available to them, but we're getting to the point where um, it's like two full years that some of these students have been doing their work and have wow. not actually been on our campus. Um, and they can't get out of their countries because their countries, like the travel is either impossible or really, mm -hmm. really difficult. So I don't right. know, it's just a really difficult situation for them. Oh, I know. Well, I can't imagine what they feel like they're missing out on of the college experience, you know, like just not being there, you know, like I, I think of a lot of my college experience was like the being present for, for in-person <laughs> things and personally, but um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I had a transfer student who finished last year and she was just like, I, you know, I transferred as, I did two years of junior college, I transferred, and then I had one quarter where things were mm -hmm. normal. And yeah. she's like, I don't know anybody. You know, I have this degree, but I don't know any professors. I didn't meet hardly any of them. I don't know any of my fellow students. Like, mm. I would never go to a reunion because I don't know anybody. Right. And all of the transfers from that group are in the same boat. And now we have another year where it's like, who knows what's going to happen? You know, sure. I mean, if if you have classes in person, maybe some of that starts back up again, but I don't know. I mean, college is, you're right. It's so much of it is in person and meeting oh, yeah. people and, you know, and understanding kind of new perspectives and talking to people you'd never otherwise interact with. And mm. if you're not doing that, I don't know. It's, yeah. it's a real loss. And if oh, you have yeah. a whole group of kids who are losing that, mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know what that means. 
Right. Do they send their kids to college in the future? Are they going to pay oh, for no. tuition? You know, there's so much that, um, there's so much that's unpredictable because of this. And mm-hmm. I feel for them. Um, oh, uh, yeah. You know, like, especially the kids who were seniors in 2020 and then didn't get a freshman year experience and now kind of aren't mm. getting a normal sophomore year experience. And they lost in-person graduation from high school. Mm. They lost prom. They lost like all of these milestones and then they lost freshman year and now they're losing sophomore year and that's i can't imagine Mm -hmm. Um, yeah definitely well i have to say personally in my house with having little kids and we were going to do homeschooling anyway this couldn't have worked out better because (laughs) homeschooling is like the mainstream now everybody's trying to catch up to where we're at (laughs) um so that's this has actually been pretty great in in that way in that you know i've gotten to work from home a lot the kids of, you know, my, my oldest is uh, in first grade. Uh, the young, the middle one is in, in preschool now. So it's, we've just been doing all this stuff that we would have done anyway, but now we're just doing it harder than ever. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's been, uh, but it's been great be- to read your book too, because uh, my son is very interested in, in what I'm, I'm reading about. And I read him a couple chapters of your book um, because he's doing uh, actually ancient Egyptian history. Uh, oh, wow. and, and I'm having in, in his schooling, that's his uh, focus right now. So it's been cool to like uh, kind of mix those, even though they're like 2000 years apart, which that's one, one thing I was going to talk to you about is just the large expanses of time. Like we think of yeah. The Romans is ancient history. The, the the Romans thought of the ancient Egyptians as much as ancient history as we think of them, you know. And to us, it's all just in this big pile of ancient history. But you know, it's <laughs> yeah. Um, no, that's a great that's a great point. And there's actually this really cool thing that I was reading. Um, it's a walking tour of Rome where you go and see all of the obelisks. Mm. Uh, and there's I think 17. I think that's right. Uh-huh. that are set up by various ancient, you know, emperors and popes and stuff. Um, and you can like walk through and kind of see the way that the city worked with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's this idea of like, okay, well, we're new and they're old. And like, what do you do to make the new look old? You bring the mm-hmm. old to the new. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and then we walk by those things and we're just like, ah, oh, obelisk, you know, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> we don't think about um, like in the case of the uh, obelisk outside of the Lateran Basilica, they had to build a special boat to get that there. Mm. Like they had to basically invent a, you know, a Mediterranean going ship that could get wow. the thing up from first up from, I think it's from Thebes in the Valley mm-hmm. of the Kings, I think. Um, right. And then get it up, you know, the Nile, get it out into the Mediterranean, get it into the Mediterranean get it in, you know, up the Tiber to Rome and mm. it's crazy. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. Well, any of those old, you know, the pyramids, the Sphinx, the Colosseum, my goodness, like <laughs> you go down the list. How did they, how did they even do this? Like with, with the rudimentary tools at hand, I see why people think that aliens built Stonehenge. It's like, <laughs> how, how did, <laughs> how did this happen? You know, this is crazy. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> they spent a long time. I think that's the yes, thing. yeah, that right, exactly. Right. That's the answer. <laughs> it just took it just took a really, really, really long time. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, I'm about halfway through your book. Uh, it's it's super interesting. Um, I I think it's very timely in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, you start out the the first uh, introduction there, kind of leading us into the connection with the with the present. But um, what did what did the connections that you drew? you know, writing this book with our, our present day and, and why were you inspired to kind of connect what happened so long ago with, with what's going on now? Yeah, I think there's a couple things that are, um, that were driving that. The first is as a Roman historian, the thing that you always confront is this question of the decline and fall of Rome, because it's one thing, the probably, probably the one thing that everybody in the world knows about the Roman empire. Um, you know, they know that the Roman empire mm-hmm. fell. And so every time you're teaching Roman history, that's what your students come in with. Like you can guarantee that they come in with that that knowledge. Um, but when you think about that in a contemporary context, and you know, in our contemporary world, we have this ongoing narrative of we're in decline, we're in decline, we're in decline. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the United States, that narrative, I mean, you can actually see that in 
like the discussions of like John Adams in, you know, 1800 talking about what's going on with Aaron Burr and what's going on with the political dynamics in the United States. And so the narrative of decline is something that's always attached to Rome in the modern conception of Rome. And it's also something that we are we are fixated on in the United States as well. And what interested me was um, in working across all kinds of different periods of Roman history and in later interactions with Roman history, I just started noticing that this story is there all the time also. I mean, we're we're fixated on this in the United States, but Romans were fixated on it as well. And I think what's interesting about this is uh, with the perspective of, you know, that knowing the end of Rome's story, we can see that some of the times that Romans are fixated on decline, you look at this as a historian and, and wonder what they're even talking about. You know, when this is discussed in the second century BC, um, Rome is a rising military power. It's in the process of conquering the Mediterranean. Uh, the material well-being and the the economy is growing, the population is growing. Everything about this looks like it's a society that is recovering from the destruction of the Second Punic War and getting better than it ever has been before. So you then see this, this material where people are talking about the society being in decline, and you realize there's something else going on here. It's not actually people are tangibly measuring the condition of society uh, and saying that it's deteriorating in these ways, it's that people are uncomfortable about something. And there's a politician uh, or an author, or in some cases, someone who's both, uh, who understands that there is this, this discomfort with change. And they give you a way to understand why your discomfort is legitimate. And they offer you a solution to address that discomfort. But they're not actually trying to solve a problem. Um, and once I realized this, I started looking at Roman history through this lens of when are people talking about declines in that society? What are they promising when they're trying to undo those declines? And when are those declines real? Um, and when are they imaginary? Mm -hmm. And what I realized is, uh, obviously, the Roman Empire declines. Obviously, it falls because it's not here anymore. But there are also a lot of times where the legitimate decline that exists is responded to either in a positive way, where society comes together, it addresses the problems collectively, everybody feels good about doing it, um, and in the end, the society feels like they've accomplished something when they weather a crisis, uh, or there's a very real crisis and society kind of turns into fighting itself, um, and everybody takes a side and people start blaming each other, and instead of actually addressing the problems, uh, that are causing the issues that make society seem like it's make Roman society seem like it's in decline. Um, people instead focus on blaming each other for causing them and not actually correcting the issues mm. at all. Mm -hmm. So I thought Roman history gave us a really interesting way to think about our own approach to these questions of decline um, because they are major questions for us in the United States. Uh, and Rome gives us a set of tools to say, okay, this is. This is when decline is completely made up. This is when decline is real and people responded positively to it. And this is when decline is real and they respond negatively to it. And this is the consequence of each of those courses of action. Mm. Um, and so I think it gives us kind of a tool to think about how we talk about change in our society and also how we evaluate whether the choices we're making are good ones or bad ones and whether the consequences will be good or bad in the long run. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that's that's so that's a lot of great points there. I definitely want to touch on a lot of that. Um, but my question to you is going to be, you know, the slogan is "Make America Great Again," and a lot of your politicians you mentioned in this book are, are trying to make Rome great again. But when was yeah. Rome, quote unquote, great? When 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 was it? When was it? When are they trying to get back to? What's the what's the date here? What, when can can we pinpoint an era when, you know, everything was ideal for the Romans that they're like, yes, <laughs> this is what we want to do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they do have those moments, but generally the, the you know, um, I forget what this Woody Allen movie was, um, but they're in, you know, it's, it's this author, this like failing author in a failing marriage who wants to go back to Paris in the 1920s and somehow stumbles into like a, a time vortex and goes oh, back uh, to the 1920s. Paris, uh, Paris at Midnight. 
Yeah, 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 Paris at Midnight. So then he goes back to the 20s and he hangs out with these people in the 20s who also mm-hmm. discover the time vortex who want to go back yes. to the 1880s. And I right. think that's the the mentality in Rome, right? It was always good. It, it was always better in the past. And if the material conditions right now are better than they were, whatever, 40 years ago, um, then you say, well, okay, yeah, we're better, we're richer now, but morality was better 40 years ago. Mm. Um uh, or, you know, if you're a Christian and you're living through a moment of really difficult um, military conditions in, say, the Middle Ages, you'll look back and say, well, you know, in the age of Constantine, we were both good Romans and good Christians, and we need to go back to what we were doing then because the empire was strong and we were also pious. And so we've materially fallen away from that because spiritually we've fallen away from that. Mm. Um and then occasionally you have Romans say, yeah, that's pretty good right now, <laughs> but only occasionally. Um, mm-hmm. And then there are a couple moments where you have Romans say, hey, we're we're making progress and Rome will be better than it has ever been before. Um, but they get continual pushback from people saying you are changing things and that's mm-hmm. making things worse. And um, what do you mean there's progress? There's no such thing as progress. We we got to where we were because we did things in a certain way. And when you change that, we're going to go into a bad place and that's not progress. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's a very interesting thing. Um, cause most of the time the conversation is pretty standard. It's, you know, it's Paris at midnight. You're always going back to somewhere just over the horizon that you don't remember because you're yeah. too young. Right. Right. Exactly. And everything was, was perfect and ideal. And, you know, I, we, we always romanticize times in our, in our own pasts, when, you know, we were going through them, we still had problems, you know, <laughs> things weren't yeah. exactly, you know, even in my own life, I'm like, gosh, I wish I could go back to the 90s. But it's like, I still had problems in the <laughs> 90s, you know, like, <laughs> you know, just because 9-11 hadn't happened yet doesn't mean everything was perfect, you know, <laughs> like, like, we, we still yeah. had issues and stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, no, that that's definitely a theme that comes up again and again. And it does seem to be a tool that, politicians that you describe use to advance their own careers and it's 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 got to be interesting from your perspective having the kind of remove of several thousand years to to kind of see what the outcomes were and what the motivations were but everyone who's writing or making coins uh you know uh, at this time and and having scribes write things about them and you know have have the histories written it's all for a purpose right it's all for a for a reason and it, it has a perspective and uh you know they're trying to cast things in a certain light you know and they're they're trying to do that for a very specific reason that's obviously advantageous for them so it's got to be interesting as you're doing this research uh for this material to go back and be like huh you know, you're, you're saying this because that's one thing I had to explain to my son uh, when I was reading the chapters in your book. It's like, you know, this historian is saying this now because of this reason. Like he's not saying it as an impartial judge, like he somebody's paying him to write this and they're like, you better say this <laughs> right now and then say it in this way so that people think this thing, you know. Yeah, I think that that's the that's the thing that we always have to keep in mind. Um, people are saying these things because it advantages them a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the time, though, they're saying these things because they genuinely believe them to be true. Okay, and, yeah, that's fair. And they don't care whether it actually advantages them or not. They genuinely believe that what's going on is wrong, mm-hmm. um, and they don't actually expect to get any benefit from saying what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there, there is a guy named Maximus Confessor who shows up in the book in the, the seventh century chapter. Um, and what's interesting about him is he knows what he's saying is going to get him punished. Um, he knows what he's saying is not going to have any great benefit to him personally. And he ends up like losing his tongue and he ends up getting arrested mm. and he ends up exiled. And, and he, I think, didn't anticipate precisely that that would happen. But I don't think he's saying this because um, you know he's saying it because he believes that the the doctrinal position taken by the emperors um, mm-hmm. is wrong, and he feels that it's wrong in his heart. He feels it's wrong. He feels that uh, there's a negative consequence for the empire when the emperor takes a theological position and uses the force of the state to um, push it down people's throats, and that position is not in keeping with what God actually wants. Mm-hmm. And Maximus 
comfortable saying these things, not because he wants to be Bishop of Constantinople or he wants to um, build a political career or he even really wants to build a following, but he actually genuinely believes that what he's saying, um, what he's saying is right and it matters. Mm-hmm. And if there are consequences to that, then there are consequences to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and I think there are people in Roman history who show up like that. Um, another one I think is Gaius Gracchus, who's a, a politician in the 120s BC. Um, so, you know, in every way different from the Christian theologian Maximus. But what Gaius Gracchus understood was he, you know, his brother had been a, pol- a political figure and a kind of rabble rouser who was murdered in the streets. And Gaius, I think, knew that if he undertook a political career, he would have basically the same outcome. He would get killed. Um, but he saw really significant problems in how Roman society was working. Um, he was really uncomfortable with the economic dynamics in that society. And he also felt that the relationship that Rome had with other peoples in Italy who were not citizens of Rome, but had lots of citizens from their individual cities working in Rome, basically illegally, um, there needs to be some way to address that problem as well. And so Gaius Marcus jumps into this knowing full well that probably even having any kind of political activity at all is going to be suspicious for the people who killed his brother and also probably suspecting that he was going to be killed if he did this. And Mm -hmm. uh, he does it anyway because he thinks that what he's doing is right and it's necessary. And if he doesn't do it, it's not going to get done. And so occasionally you have people like that who are coming into public life and criticizing dynamics in the world around them, not because they get anything out of it. I mean, they probably understand that there's going to be negative consequences when they do this kind of thing. Uh, But they think that there's a bigger contribution they can make by stepping up and saying, our society is not going in the right direction. Uh, And there are things that need to happen that uh, can correct correct that course but they're not popular and you're going to be upset with me if you're in power and you hear me say these things, but it's necessary to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I think the consequences for any actions back in this time are so immediate that, you know, that, you know, nowadays presidents don't lead their troops into battle at the the front horse of the, the cavalry or whatever. But back in the day you had to like, walk it like you talk it and you had to be out in front of any action you were going to take. And that might mean you might end up the footstool or whatever of, of some other emperor. If things don't go your way, you know, it might not be so great uh, on the other end of it, you know, and, and the consequences were very immediate. So yeah, it's, it's not like you can say these things from a safe uh, remove or, or kind of sit back in, in the cut and say these things. You kind of have to be up in front and uh, or else no one's going to follow you. Right. I mean, with with a lot of these leaders, it's like you have to be, you know, out in front of these things or no one's going to take you seriously. So, yeah. And I think in a lot of those cases, um, the emperor is making the decision to go out in front of of these, you know, to go and lead an army on campaign. That's also a kind of power decision um, where you're saying this because you're pointing out the failings of the people who came before you. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think the example that, that, you know, comes out most clearly from what you just mentioned is the Emperor Valerian, the one who actually is made into a footstool. Yes, um, and, that was a very memorable an, anecdote. I couldn't get that out of my head after I read that. <laughs> and uh, Valerian comes in the middle of what, what historians call the third century crisis. And, uh, and it's actually the moment when Valerian is involved is a really serious crisis in Roman history. I mean, some of the third century crisis is worse than other parts of it. But uh, this moment when Valerian is emperor, it's a really, really serious time. And Valerian decides that um, the way that he has to advertise his restoration of Rome is to be basically a hardcore kind of old school military figure who, like an old general in the Roman Republic or uh, an old emperor like the Emperor Trajan, uh, is going to lead the army into battle because this is how you're going to inspire the army to to fight harder and you're going to have better leadership. And uh, it's a totally hubristic way of thinking about things. Mm-hmm. Um, these guys, uh, these guys are not the top commanders that the Roman army has. I mean, they're just not. This is a professional army. Um, a lot of these guys who are serving in the army are serving for a decade or more. Uh, they know what they're doing. 
They're very well trained. And somebody who shows up from Rome, who was a senator and a provincial governor, um, they're just not going to be as good. Uh, but it's about demonstrating competence in a way that predecessors really couldn't. Um, and so the the person that these guys are pushing back against is an emperor who was um, emperor from about 220, the early 220s, about 221 until 235. This is a guy named Alexander Severus. And he's put up by basically his mother and his grandmother. And they kind of run the empire through him because he's young. Um, when he takes power, he's still basically a teenager. And he doesn't, he, he looks like a wimp. I mean, you look at his coins and his statues and he looks like a kind of skinny little nerdy kid. He's not imposing. He's not awe-inspiring. Um, but his regime is pretty competent. It's just not the way the Roman emperors traditionally did things. And so these guys in the middle part of the third century are kind of pushing back against this idea that an emperor should be kind of mousy and competent and, you know, hide behind um, more senior advisors and stay in Rome and let the army do what the army does. These guys bring themselves out as a kind of face of confidence and they mess things up badly. Um, I mean, Valerian basically makes the mistake of going to a peace negotiation without adequate protection, then he gets captured. And mm. you see the um, images that come out of Persia from, you know, per the Persian king is the person who captured him. And they actually show the Persian king capturing Valerian without even drawing his sword. Mm. I mean, it, it, it's literally the image almost looks like when... Um, when I mean, you'll maybe recognize this, like when a child is misbehaving and a parent comes and picks him up by the arm, um, <laughs> it's just, I am the superior power. I am the person who knows better. And oh my God, you are so backwards. Like you are not <laughs> capable of resisting me. Um, and that's kind of the, the failed promise of these kinds of emperors. Um, I mean, we wouldn't want I don't know, Joe Biden or Donald Trump to go and personally conduct a war. Um, we would say, well, we have professionals who know how to do that. And Donald Trump and Joe Biden are not those types of professionals. So they should do mm -hmm. what they do. And the people who lead the army should do the things that they are trained to do. Um, and in the Roman world, a lot of people in the armies felt that way, too. They didn't want these people coming in from somewhere else. Um, and that's a that's a bit of a tension. Um, mm. In moments like the third century in particular, uh, mm -hmm. where, you know, the emperors who are put forward by the Senate who are competent but are not military figures, um, these are figures that people in the army don't particularly trust. Mm. Uh, yeah, um, this is this may be uh, aside from what we're talking about, but I found it fascinating how they kept coming up with these schemes to share power between multiple people and then the tetra thing where there's like four of them and then there's one emperor of the east and the west and it's like i i just feel like uh, history has shown i feel like that the that one person being in charge is usually like just just for simplicity's sake it's the same reason that i'm always like how do those sister wives or whatever in in, in utah make this work it's like i i find it a, enough of you know uh, i i i'm married and 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 it i feel like it takes all my all my time to tend to that and and be a good husband it's like to to be more than that it's like it's asking too much and i think the same thing is for a leader it's like there's four of you it's like make up your minds about these things um you know how did how did that come about and why did they think that was a good idea yeah so the tetrarchy comes out of um you know it comes out of the third century crisis and i think yeah. one of the storylines that people miss about the third century crisis is um in 212 AD, the Roman Empire extended citizenship to everybody living in that space. And we're talking about a space that, um, you know, is basically the size of the United States. It's massive. And it's everything from Scotland to Saudi Arabia and mm. from, um, you know, kind of the borders of what's now kind of northeastern Turkey to like Morocco. Like it is huge. There's, I think, uh, something north of 45 all are part of 45 modern countries that were once part of the Roman Empire. And so when you have citizenship extended to people across such a vast space, 
the state really has to struggle to figure out what you need to do to provide all of the protections and services to all of those new citizens. Uh, and one of the challenges of the third century was figuring out how you create a society where you're not an empire anymore in the sense of there's Italians and they exploit all of these populations around the Mediterranean to make themselves richer. Now, all of a sudden, you're kind of a nation state where everybody in this space is Roman and mm-hmm. they're all legally equal to each other. So what then do you do to make sure that you're adequately addressing all of the legal and um, financial and moral responsibilities this state has to what is now all of a sudden 80 million citizens. Mm. Uh, and what the Tetrarchy represented was a realization that a state that is that big and that complicated and has to respond equally to people across such a vast space can't be run by one person efficiently. Mm. You know, when it's just Italy and a bunch of um, relationships that involve basically funneling money from all of these other places to a government that's based in Italy, you don't actually have to pay too much attention to what, say, some city council in in Greece is doing. You know, as long as they pay their taxes, it doesn't matter to you. Um, But when those people are citizens, you do have to pay attention to them because now all of a sudden you provide um, the courts, you provide the legal protections, you provide the, the resources, you provide for you know, the food supply, you bail them out if there's any kind of financial crisis. And they had to figure out how to do that. Um, And what what the Emperor Diocletian realized in the 280s was a big part of the third century crisis involved citizens not adequately having their needs met. And so Mm -hmm. it threatened to shatter the empire um, because there were people in the 270s in particular, 260s and 270s, who said, well, like we're Romans and we're based in what's now um, Cologne and we can provide better for the needs of people in Germany and France than uh, an emperor based in Rome. So we're going to be a Roman state and we're going to have we're lose, use Latin and we're going to have Roman law and we're going to do everything a Roman state does. But we're just going to be like this area that's in northwestern Europe and we're just going to pay attention to those concerns and use the resources there to address the problems in that region. And what Diocletian realized was, okay, well, not having central control had its benefits for those places, because now all of a sudden they could respond more effectively and more efficiently to the problems in those regions. But Diocletian also understood that it's not a good idea for those places to be administratively separate from Italy, um, because then you're just inviting civil war. So he created a structure, and the Tetrarchy is the structure, where you have these kind of regional centers of government with a person who belongs to the imperial political structure um, who is present and can respond efficiently to the problems in those areas, but also is part of a collaborative group of four emperors who are all emperors working together in a unified Roman state. But they all kind of have a different portfolio. They all have a different part of the empire they're paying attention to. Um, And so it's a way to get the best of both worlds, you know, the the regionally directed um, responsiveness that you had in the 260s when you had these regional Roman empires, but then also the power of an administratively centralized state that could, if needed, direct resources from, say, um, Northern Europe to the to Middle East, if you really needed to do that. Mm. Um, and so the Tetrarchy is this kind of effort to say, um, we have an obligation to all of our citizens, but we also have this massive power. And we need to figure out how we can assemble all of the resources to make Rome as powerful as possible when that's needed, but also kind of decentralize things to such a degree that nobody's getting lost because they're just simply too far from a center of power. Mm. Yeah, no, I mean, I, when you put it like that, that makes sense. Um, but that kind of leads to my next question in that is a empire that big manageable? I mean, you, you mentioned that, you know, this, this is a rhetorical device that gets used over and over and over again about the decline and fall of, of Rome. But there are times in which, you know, that the Roman is, is in decline and 
can it help it be in decline if it's expanding that much and 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 covering that much territory? Is that kind of thing sustainable? Isn't that kind of inevitable at a certain point? Yeah, I think that the um, I think that expansion is different from maintenance. And yes. the core of the Roman Empire, um, you know, and if we're thinking about the core of the Roman Empire, I think we could talk about this area from basically um, the conquest of Britain in the 50s uh, to more or less the 410s when Britain is, ab- is abandoned. You have pieces that are added and subtracted to the empire during that time, but there is a kind of imperial core that stretches, again, from like Scotland to Saudi Arabia. And that core is intact for the better part of 350 years. Mm. Um, and, you know, and there are parts of the Roman world. We, we talked about Egypt earlier. Um, Egypt is Roman for almost 700 years. Um, the city of Ephesus is Roman for almost 1,500 years. Mm. Um, you know, you, you have these regions in the Roman state that are there for a really, really long time. And, um, you know, incredibly long. I mean, longer than we can even conceive of as as Americans in a country that's not even 250 years old. Mm-hmm. And so I think we have to acknowledge that there's a couple of things going on across this vast span of Roman history. One of those things is, well, maybe there's three things. One is expansion. And at moments when the empire expands, there is a real, real challenge in um, how you integrate things that are coming back or coming into Roman control into a state that has established procedures and has a kind of established way of directing resources that is more or less working. And so when you bring all of these new places or peoples or resources online, um, you as a state have to figure out how to spread that equally across your population or you're going to have social unrest. Rome generally did not do a wonderful job of that. Um, when it expanded quickly, um, and there are moments we can think about, like uh, the period in the second and first century BC, um, it expanded very quickly. It did not manage the effects of all of the wealth coming into that society very well, and it caused a lot of social upheaval that led to the fall of the Republic. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another really vast uh, expansion that happens after the empire's divide under the Emperor Justinian, there's an expansion to the, to the West. Um, they didn't handle that particularly well either. Uh, and then there's another vast expansion that occurs in um, the 10th and 11th centuries under the Macedonian dynasty, when what um, is the Eastern Roman Empire, known to a lot of people as the Byzantine Empire, uh, expands really dramatically to its North and to its East. And again, that causes a kind of imbalance where certain people benefit disproportionately because they've been involved in that. Uh, And the empire really struggles in those moments. But where Rome succeeds, I think, better than nearly every society that we can look at is once it it gets those problems out of its system, uh, the Roman state does a really good job of stabilizing and then creating systems where the core of the empire functions really well together um, and it stays functional for a long period of time. So, you know, that, that peak moment between, um, and we could even push it back. And if we exclude Britain, we have a period from basically the reign of uh, the beginning of the reign of Augustus through more or less like the four twenties. So we have almost 450 years um, where Rome maintains control of a core set of territories and it does a very good job of not only integrating those territories, but creating an administrative structure so it can govern them effectively. Um, and it, it, and that's a success that I think we also have to be aware of. Um, this is a state that, that struggles at times, but also is tremendously successful at doing things that a lot of other states failed to do. Um, I mean, it's a very rare empire that can transform itself into a nation state, you know, that mm-hmm. can get all people who start as a subject population um, and make them not not even kind of involved, but a core part of what that society is. Um, mm. And I think the best way to show that is the Roman Empire, the, the Roman state starts, you know, in a city in central Italy uh, with people who are pagans and speak Latin. And it ends in the city of Constantinople in what's now Turkey with a population that speaks Greek and is Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a tremendous success for that society, mm-hmm. right? The fact that it can change and integrate and 
basically the society can remain intact even when the people who are running it um, change in every imaginable way, you know, ethnically, religiously, linguistically, culturally, like everything that you can imagine about these people in 1453 is totally different from the people who start that society in 753 or whenever we'd say it started. BC. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, that does lead into the next thing I was going to ask about is the role of religion and in particular Christianity in this in this entire story because um you know there there is a whole belief system before christianity comes on the scene obviously and that gets upended when certain emperors take on christianity and then when others reject it um so i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you think that figures into the history of all this because i think it's it's pretty integral as as time goes on obviously yeah, I think the interesting thing in the the 2200 year history of the Roman state is uh, the state becomes Christian like at the midpoint of that history. Mm-hmm. You know, you've had almost 1100 years where Rome is a pagan state. And then you have um, in the fourth century, this process of transformation where uh, at the beginning of the fourth century, the empire is maybe 10 percent Christian. And by the end of the fourth century, it's a majority Christian. Uh, and then you have, you know, another almost 1,100 years where Roman society is a Christian society. I mean, for a while there are uh, still pagan minorities in that society, but, um, you know, for most of the rest of Roman history, this is a Christian society. And the the shift is, I think, important for a couple of reasons. I mean, this was the moment when we talked earlier about this idea of progress. This is the moment where um, the language of progress really comes to the fore where Christians start saying, well, yeah, okay, it's true. We've never had a Roman Christian society. Um, We've never had a Roman Christian government. We've never had a Roman Christian emperor until Constantine, but now we do. And that's better than anything we had before. And so we should embrace the change. We shouldn't um, reject the change simply because it's new. And this is the way Christians talk about the process of making the Roman Empire Christian in the fourth century. They're basically saying that this is a this is a, a set of tools that will make Rome better than it has ever been before. And pagans respond by saying, what we did before made us great. And you're literally deliberately taking away the things that um, that we have done for a thousand years that have given us all of this territory and all of this wealth and all of this power. Uh, what you're doing is going to bring about decline. And Christians say, no, it's making things better, it's progress, and Rome will be better because of what we're doing. And then in 410, the city of Rome is sacked by barbarians. The first time in 800 years Rome has been sacked, and pagans basically say, see, we told you so. Uh, And in the 5th century, there is this, this process of reckoning with what it meant to embrace Christianity, be warned by pagans that embracing Christianity is going to lead to military catastrophe, deny that that actually has any chance of happening, and then come to terms with the fact that the pagans were right. You know, what they said was going to happen is what happened. And what what obligation do we as Christians have to kind of own this as a consequence of what we did? And the response that Christians have is quite interesting. Um, in the East, they just ignore it because the Eastern half of the empire wasn't sacked in 410. It's actually strong. Um, it's powerful. And this is a kind of abstract thing for them because they have their capital in Constantinople. Um, The East divided from the West. Uh, Eastern emperors reigned without connection to Italy starting in 395. And so when Rome is sacked, for the East, this is an abstraction. They know about it. I mean, we hear about St. Jerome in Bethlehem kind of breaking out like in, in, you know, ugly crying because he can't believe that this actually happened. So they knew about it in the East, but it doesn't affect them in the same way that it affects someone like Augustine, who's in the West, and writes the City of God to try to explain what, as a Christian, you should do in response to this. And Augustine's answer is quite interesting. He said, look, the empire is great if it helps you be a better Christian, but the whole point of things is to be a better Christian, not to be a better Roman. And so be a better Christian. Don't worry about being Roman. Uh, And this becomes a kind of way in the West that people think about Christianity and, and the Roman state. In the East, they don't get to that point for a very, very long time. I mean, this is a totally weird idea to somebody in Constantinople. 
in the fifth century. I mean, a contemporary of Augustine who lives in Constantinople or Alexandria or Antioch, they aren't struggling with this. And so for them, the idea of Christian progress is something that just keeps rolling on. Um, but in the West, the idea of Christian progress grinds to a halt uh, in the fifth century. And people start saying, well, Christian progress is different than Roman progress. Uh, but in the East, the two things are still united um, and remain united through you know, at least the sixth century. And I think you could probably argue still through the seventh century. We're still mm -hmm. into the seventh century. Right. Um, but what do you think we can learn from this in, entire story of, of decline for our own age? How do we how do we stop it? Because it seems like, you know, you describe, you know, we're going back a little further than we were talking about in the 300s or whatever, uh, going back to the time of, you know, Brutus and, and Julius Caesar. And we're talking about, uh, you know, the uh, violence in political life. Um, once once you like you say in the book, once you enter into that, it's hard to stop. Um, you know, and I, I couldn't help think of the January 6th when I was I was thinking of political violence and, and how, do, how do we, you know, how, how do you put that genie back in the bottle? How do you arrest that decline? How do you reverse course, I guess, because it, you're right, I think once political violence is, is seen as an option that that does seem to speed things up. And, and on a side note, I do think that that saying things are in decline actually makes things worse. Like I think <laughs> I don't I don't think you have to be a blind, uh, you know an an optimist in in every way and I do think it, it's good to keep a cynical eye on things but it's like if if you just always say things are terrible that does seem to be a self fulfilling prophecy in a certain way but but what's what's your feelings? Yeah, I think both of those things are true. Um, I think that one of the things that you see when Rome does this well. Um, is you know, stuff like what Marcus Aurelius does, where um, in the 170s, it's a terrible time to be alive. Um, you know, empires hit with smallpox, probably 10% of the population dies, probably you know, a bigger, much bigger portion of the population is, is afflicted by this. Um, social structures collapse, cities are abandoned, they can't run their affairs anymore because all of the civic leaders are dead. They can't actually even campaign with the armies for a year because so many people are sick. And um, what Marcus does at that point is he 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 brings together who people who are left who have capacity and have leadership roles, and he says, in essence, we have real problems. I'm not going to ask you to do things that you can't do, um, and I'm not going to blame you for things that you do wrong. What we have to do is figure out what you can do well, uh, figure out how those capacities can be mobilized to make society better. And then we'll work together and we'll praise each other when we do something right. And that's a way to acknowledge that something is not going in the right direction, but also get people together with um, solving it and solving it in a very collaborative fashion so that society gets stronger. And the crisis doesn't break society down. It instead builds society up. Um, and so I think that that's what, one of the ways where you can talk about things being in decline, but make it a kind of positive conversation where you say, like, in essence, um, bridges are falling down and infrastructure is deteriorating and a healthy society comes together and fixes those things. So what are we arguing about? Look, let's all just come together and figure out how we fix our roads and we fix our infrastructure and we fix our trains and uh, we fix our bridges and we fix our ports and all of the things that we know aren't working very well we have ways to fix them. And instead of blaming each other for letting them fall into disrepair, we just come together and we figure out what we can each do to contribute to their restoration. And that's a story that Rome tells, and I think it tells it very effectively. But I think the story of political violence is something that absolutely is exacerbated by this perception that society is in decline. Um, and I think those things do reinforce each other. Um, if you're speaking all the time about a loss of rights or a loss of privileges or a loss of opportunities or a loss of um, standing or a loss of wealth, um, that begins to become a situation where people feel like their country is not working anymore. And when you don't feel like your country is working, the basic promises that your country has made to ensure your prosperity or even ensure your life, um, 
those start to seem hollow. They start to seem like things that are promises that cannot be fulfilled. And then people become desperate. And once violence enters into that conversation, it not only enhances the fact or the, the feeling that your country is kind of slipping away, but it also becomes a way to fight against it. Um, and so you feel empowered in a fashion um, that is totally temporary and does much more damage, uh, but it feels like you're making a contribution to at least protecting yourself in a condition where the society isn't functionally able to do that anymore. Uh, mm -hmm. And this is, I think, what, what the, Roman, the last stages of the Roman Republic show. Um, a lot of the people, a lot of the leaders who are resorting to violence in that last phase are people like Julius Caesar, who feel like they will not have their rights protected by any legal structure that anyone will observe. You know, there are laws. Um, those laws are on the books. But those laws exist only when people are willing to let those laws exist. And Caesar, for example, didn't trust that people would observe those laws. Um, and he felt that it was better to use violence when he still had the capacity to do it rather than trust that he'll be protected by the laws and uh, come back and lose his ability to fight against any injustice done to him um, when he felt like it was very likely that whatever legal protections he had would be suspended and his opponents would do whatever they want to him, um, regardless of what the laws say. And mm -hmm. so I think that we're not there in the United States. I don't think we're even close to there in the United States. Um, but but that's kind of where that's kind of where Rome ended up. Um, and mm -hmm. it's a cycle that began because people felt that political violence was the only way to protect their interests. Um, and none of them felt like it was something you needed to do all the time. They always felt like it was something that, you know, it's an emergency moment. And um, it's, it's, you know, the last moment that we can save our republic or the last moment that we can save our freedoms. And, you know, we would never resort to this on a regular basis. But you do it again and again as a society and it becomes a normal thing. Um, and that's, you know, a process that started 100 years before Caesar. Um, but by the time you get to Caesar, it, the use of violence had become such a normal part of the way that politicians resolved serious disputes that Caesar, frankly, didn't trust that there was any other way that a dispute with his opponents would ultimately be resolved. And so mm -hmm. he struck before somebody struck him. Mm -hmm. Yes, Um well, that's that's a great point, and uh, yeah, I hope I hope it never gets to just just all out <laughs> uh, blood in the streets and everything. And and you know, it's it's only because, like you were saying, people feel like it's like their only other option. It's like you know, I, going back to January sixth, it's like people were always like, you know, oh, they're losing our country. Well, if you literally think that you have to do this or something like that's going to happen, you're, you're probably willing to do anything. And, and I think just opening up the possibility that you really don't have to throw out all the stops just yet <laughs> is, is really got to be the answer I would think. Cause that's the only way back from, from that line of thinking. So. Yeah. Um, and I think that's exactly right. The, the, you know, the, the collaborative approach that you see under Marcus Aurelius, it took Rome a long time to get to the point where people trusted each other enough to do that. But if you don't ever try, you'll never get to that point. Mm -hmm. um, and at certain points in our history, we were at that point. Um, you know, we did come together to, I mean, 20 years ago, you know, right. we, we came together as a group of people that wanted to respond to 9-11. And I think, well, I think that our response wasn't, um, in the end, it wasn't as constructive as it could have been. But we had the potential. Um and so we still have the potential as a country to come together and do things collaboratively that acknowledges everybody's everybody's role that they can play in our society um, and, you know, and rewards them for doing what they do well. And that's mm -hmm. what a functional society does. And we still, I think, have the capacity to do that. But we have to realize it's important to do that. It's important to try. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that we have in recent years moved away from recognizing how important it is to try to do things collaboratively, you know, to try to do things collectively as a society that gives everybody a role in feeling good about the outcome that they help generate. And we're just not doing a very good job of that right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. Um, 
but uh, I really appreciate you taking all this time this evening. Uh, I, uh, I I really enjoy your book, uh, just like I did the last one, and I'm going to definitely uh, finish it out here in the next few days. But my last question before we go, always, yeah. uh, what music have you been listening to lately? <laughs> uh, okay, so I, I have um, gotten into kind of late 90s stuff um, that I didn't, didn't hear at the time. There so the go. song that my daughter and I are listening to in the car to school every day is um, a song called Decepticon by La Tigra. Yes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I know that one. <laughs> yeah, so that's what we're listening to, and we love it. <laughs> I love that song. Yeah, very catchy. Um, well, you can't do better than the nineties. That's where it's at. <laughs> so, <laughs> not going not to get any argument from me there. Um, but, uh, yeah, hopefully it's not three years again before I talk to you. This was fun. Yeah. As always. Anytime. So, Just let me cool. know. And, um, it'd be fun to catch up. We'll do. We'll do, man. Uh, well have a good night and, uh, have a good, uh, week at uh, school here. <laughs> so, you too. Thank you. All right. Have a good night. Bye bye. Join the Rob Burgess Show mailing list. Go to tinyletter.com forward slash the Rob Burgess Show and type in your email address. Then respond to the automatic message. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review everywhere the podcast is available, including iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, RSS, and now Spotify. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com.
You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. If you have something to say, record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to therobburgessshow at gmail.com. Include voice memo in the subject line of the email. Also, if you want to call or text the show for any reason, the number is 317-674-3547. Until next time.